0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Enterprise Biz Bites. I'm Roshan Connison with Richard Bradbury in the studio with me this Monday afternoon. Not Monday morning, Monday afternoon. We just ticked over. It is June 12th, just after 12.06 p.m. right now. And, uh, Rich, how was your weekend?
1: Interesting weekend. Uh, Interesting. uh, Yes, I went to the uh, British Raj, had myself a lovely Indian dinner there, Uh, went to a, a kind of vegan experience
0: on Saturday evening. Interesting. It was good stuff. What about you? Um, I had a friend's quiz over the weekend. I had uh, I caught up with friends, friend's birthday. So yeah, all in all, a nice chilled weekend. Nice,
1: relaxed weekend. Yeah. yeah. And was weather good.
0: was good as yeah, well. It was. Um, but you know what? We're in, into the work week now, mm. uh, Richard, and I have a pop quiz for you. Oh, It's already Monday. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Rich. All right, come on. Come uh, on. You Hit deliver? me with it. Hit me with it. Nestle. And let's say Procter & Gamble. Okay. What do these brands have in common? Well, they all make a lot of money. Uh, that's, yes, for, uh, that's true. Consumer goods, I imagine. Exactly. So uh, I, but all these are very Western-centric, very eurocentric centric uh, consumer goods that mm, really mm. produce a lot of the goods that we consume on a daily basis. I mean, I had the false impression growing up that Meggy was a Malaysian company. Oh, please. And Milo was a Malaysian company, <laughs> only to find out much later that I was deluded. <laughs> um, but today, we're going to be taking an interesting angle on this yeah, because yeah. Bain & Company released a report, I think it was towards the the end of last month or early this month and on the biggest Asian consumer products companies and what they saw was overseas expansion has been instrumental for their growth although we may not be as uh, we may not be seen as uh, clearly as some because they've been going through a, a, uh, acquisitions and things yeah, like that yeah um, but what we found was that it was instrumental for them to grow overseas and they have been actively at it.
1: Yeah, obviously, the expansion has been uh, instrumental for growth, as you've said. And some of the uh, interesting bits of information from the report that you mentioned, Bain & Company, right? Uh, They released this report recently uh, with these findings. And of Asia-Pacific's 50 largest consumer product companies, as per the report, 22 are headquartered in China, 21 in Japan, and
0: seven mysteriously elsewhere. Seven elsewhere. <laughs> and, 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 you know what? When I saw this, Richard, it really does kind of tell us at times because Japan was a massive industrial player, right? Yeah. So if you look at the Western, if you look at the biggest companies on earth, aside the Western companies, it's the, it traditionally has been the Japanese right. folks, right? The, yeah. the Sharps, the Sonys. And now we're seeing China come in and then seven elsewhere. You know, like yeah. one in Thailand, one in Philippines, uh-huh, one in Ma- uh-huh. hopefully one in Malaysia.
1: Well, we'll see, won't we? Yeah? Yeah. So between 20, uh, 2012 and 2021, the 50 biggest Asia-Pacific consumers consumer product firms increased revenue three times faster overseas than at home. Overseas revenue growth was 9% CAGR compared to only 3% CAGR
0: for domestic revenue. And in 2021, uh, based on their numbers here, nine of those 50 firms generated more than half their total revenue offshore. And these aren't small companies. These are Mm. massive companies. Another 15 generated 25% of their total revenue offshore. So showing this increasing, uh, well, presence overseas, whether directly or indirectly. Mm. Uh, the other one, uh, the data point I found quite interesting was that Chinese-based consumer companies uh, experienced the fastest offshore growth at 17% compounded annual growth rate, or CAGR, uh, in the 10 years leading up to 2021. Uh, in uh, Overseas revenue in 2021 accounted for 20% of China-based consumer product companies' total revenue. So mm. nothing to scoff at, big things happening in Asia. And Today on BizBytes, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into this report and explore really how Asia-Pacific companies, uh, these consumer uh, Asia-Pacific companies, have been able to expand overseas so quickly and what lessons, if any, uh, Malaysia can learn, uh, Malaysian firms can learn about overseas expansion. and If you have any thoughts on how important overseas expansion is, whether Malaysian companies can do it or... If you know any Malaysian companies that are overseas and have a strong presence that we may not be as aware of, let us know on our Yule Mobile number at 018-789-8899, WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. While we wait for your responses, helping us with this conversation today right now is Gino Dizon, the a partner at Bain & Company. He's a member of Bain's consumer products, retail and mergers and acquisitions practices. Uh, Gino, can you hear us?
2: I can hear you. Hey, can you hear me.
0: Yes, loud and clear. Beautiful sound coming through. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon, um, Gino. As we mentioned earlier, fifty of those largest consumer products companies in Asia Pacific um, quite dominated between China and Japan. There, twenty-two headquartered in China, twenty-one in Japan, and uh, seven elsewhere. Uh, could you give us a sense as to why uh, this uh, why this dominance by China and Japan?
2: First off, Richard and Roshan, thank you for for having me. Uh, it's a privilege to to be here uh, and uh, and help you kind of dissect the report. Um, the the report focuses on the top fifty largest uh, consumer products companies in Asia Pacific, and may, maybe not so much a surprise uh, to have so many Chinese and Japanese companies there. On China, it's really uh, driven by the sheer population mm. uh, size and massive consumer base. Uh, and in Japan, uh, quite smaller in population, but highly developed uh, and highly affluent uh, consumer markets. You have uh, forty-three of the fifty companies from those two countries. Mm. Now let's open the let's open the box on the other seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: yes, please. This was but, all, uh,
2: this was yeah. the, the
1: most exciting thing I was looking forward to. <laughs>
2: uh, Similar, I guess, similar in dynamics to Japan, uh, Korea has, uh, has three of the seven. Uh, again, very, very similar, um, you know, relatively small population, but highly developed and have highly affluent consumer market. Mm. Uh, and then we have a couple of, uh, we have a couple of Southeast Asian companies, sorry to burst the bubble, but Malaysia didn't make it to the 50. We have one, from, we have one each from the Philippines, uh, Indonesia and Thailand, uh, and, uh, and and then one from New Zealand.
1: Interesting. Okay. Um, so as we're looking at the, these results, it, it kind of looks like a, a bit of a battle between Japan and China. Um, but are there any up and coming countries in uh, Asia Pacific that have consumer product firms that could potentially, uh, I guess, eventually challenge
2: this dominance that we're seeing? Yes, d- definitely. Uh you know, if you take a look at uh, Southeast Asia as sort of one block, yeah. um, you know, you have you have a couple of companies uh, there and and several more sort of knocking at the door of the top 50. Uh, you know, the, the the Southeast Asian block, if you look at it as one block, you know, you have over 250 million, mm. uh, 300 million in population, uh, a highly uh, attractive sort of middle seg- middle middle class segment growing. Uh, a population that's uh, highly urbanized, uh, or are moving to highly urbanized in, in some areas, uh, and so uh, and and highly digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, digital digital adoption rates in Southeast Asia are among the highest mm-hmm. in the world and the keyest in the world. So, as a as a block, I'd say you know Southeast Asia are knocking at the door. Uh, and you know, if we did this study, ten years from now, we wouldn't be surprised if if that mix starts to change. Uh, Korea uh, as well. Uh, you know, you only have three companies in that list, but you know they're highly. You know, they're looking to foreign markets uh, quite aggressively. And again, wouldn't be surprised if we did this in in, in, in 10 years time, if, if, that, if, if the mix actually starts to change. Mm.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I was actually quite surprised that Korea didn't have a bigger presence considering that, you know, at the forefront of a lot of our consumer electronics seems to be these large Korean companies. Mm. Uh, but I guess it's one or two of them that really dominate uh, the industries respectively from consumer products perspective anyway. So looking forward to 10 years, let's see how that plays out. But if we take a step back and look towards uh you know a bit of history the report also notes that traditionally apac uh, consumer products companies struggled to grow overseas highlighting that only uh one chinese company is on the forbes list of uh, the 100 most valuable global brands uh, gino could you give us some insight as to why this is the case
2: yeah so i think the the report uh takes a, takes a long look at, at at sort of the last 10 years uh and I think if you look at the, the top 50 companies uh, from 2012 to 2021, uh, and the only reason we had to cut the report of 2021 was because, you know, we, we didn't have sort of full year data on 2022 companies across all of the top 50 mm-hmm. uh, payback companies. So if you look at the last 10 years, uh, revenue uh, for, for this top 50 group, you know, grew about 3% in the domestic markets. And I think, as you said earlier, it, it you know, we've seen it grow 9%. Uh, overseas uh, outside of their domestic markets, So three times faster, but I, I think stepping back, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I think there's a number of factors. I think one is, is really the, the brands developed for uh, domestic consumer markets are not always transferable to new markets. Right. Uh, and, you know, some of our, you know, some of our Asian brands maybe suffer from that, from that, uh, from that reality. Uh Secondly, I think you know, as brands try to grow organically in, in foreign markets, uh, you know, they run into issues of how to actually run these international businesses. Uh, and you know, they may not have the, the people or the capabilities to properly expand those, those businesses in those, those markets. Mm-hmm. And we found you know, M&A to be uh, a tool that can help bridge uh, the talent and capability gap and also the scale gap uh, in those markets to drive, to drive you know, accelerated growth.
1: That's something I wanted to touch on just before we, we take a, a short break here. And It largely seems to be an issue of the past with the Asia-Pacific CP50 increasing revenue three times faster overseas than at home in the 10 years leading up to 2021. How instrumental has M&A activity been in the growth and expansion of uh, Asia-Pacific CP firms?
2: Oh, uh, very, very instrumental. I think we have found from the from the analysis that uh, that the acquirers in that top fifty set, uh, of which you know more than half of the companies we would consider to be acquirers, mm. uh, you know grew grew revenue, you know, and top line faster uh, than let's say the non acquirers, uh, and it was really about you know, the, the acquisitions I guess you could you could group into, into several uh, types. I think the the foremost and the more traditional type of of, of acquisitions are to build scale uh, distribution scale, manufacturing scale in foreign markets. And I think over half of the acquisitions that we looked at in this, in this last 10 years was, was really driven was, was, was to, to drive scale, mm-hmm. uh, manufacturing and, and distribution scale. But I think on top of those traditional types of acquisitions, we've seen uh, other types of acquisitions in the last 10 years, interesting types. W- one is, um, uh, looking at more insurgent brands. Um, so companies that are, you know, younger, smaller, more nimble, more agile, uh, with, you know, with very, def- with very defined, oftentimes younger, uh, target consumers. Uh, some of these some of these top fifty companies have learned how to acquire these insurgent brands to really accelerate growth and right. and go deep into very specific customer demographics. Mm-hmm. Uh, two is is we've seen uh, we've seen acquisitions that have played into new capabilities and 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 expanded into up up or down the value chain for companies. Uh, and so you know they're buying they're not just. Sort of looking to build capabilities, they're looking to buy capabilities, uh, and, and are using overseas acquisitions to buy these to, to buy these capabilities. Mm-hmm. And then third, we're seeing uh, entry into 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 newer, uh, perhaps adjacent, perhaps newer, uh, non-adjacent categories uh, of consumer goods, uh, and they're using again these foreign acquisitions to to learn about new categories and potentially use their domestic scale to bring back some of these acquisitions into their into their domestic markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're seeing different acquisition uh, types uh, m- more so than, than we have maybe in, in previous years where it's really been all about scale. And now we're actually seeing a combination of, of acquisition types.
0: Today on BizBytes, uh, we've been exploring the reason behind some of the biggest consumer companies buying growth overseas and helping us with this conversation has been Gino Dizon, partner at Bain & Company, helping us get the reasons behind this, the importance of M&A activity in this pursuit of growth and what lessons, if any, can Malaysian firms learn from overseas expansion. Tell us what you think over WhatsApp at 18 or you can tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, buying growth can be a fast way to expand, but it does come with its own set of issues with integration being a key one. Up next, we'll explore what makes a successful integration when you buy a company. I'm Roshan with Richard and here is Morrissey with First of the Gang to Die here on BFM 89.9. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Enterprise BizBytes here with Roshan and Richard. And if you've just joined us, a recent report from Bain & Co showed us that the biggest consumer companies in Asia-Pacific have seen their revenues increase three times faster overseas than at home in the 10 years leading up to 2021. Today on BizBytes, we've been exploring the reasons behind this, the importance of M&A activity for Asian companies to grow, and what lessons, if any, can Malaysian firms learn about? overseas expansion. Helping us with this discussion has been Gino Dizon, partner at Bain & Company. He's a member of Bain's consumer products, retail, and merger and acquisitions practices. So, Gino, if we take a look at 2021, uh, some of the numbers we cited earlier saw nine of the 50 biggest Asia-Pacific consumer products companies uh, getting more than 50% of their total revenue overseas uh, and another 15 getting 25% uh, from overseas uh, sources. Any data as to which overseas market what were the main contributors to this offshore revenue growth?
2: Yes, um, I, can you hear me now? Yep, yeah, can. Yes, I, I think that um, it, it, it's highly dependent, obviously, on the on the company's uh, core uh, portfolio and core mix uh, of, of countries. But I'll throw out maybe a couple of markets that that have consistently sort of come out: uh, the U.S. Uh, and, and no surprise because of its. Uh, it's high population and and, and, and relatively high affluence. Uh, Europe, uh, sort of in you know the whole block of the whole block of Europe, the continent plus the UK, again very similar. If you add up the population and uh, and and look at sort of the the, the the relatively high sort of consumer market and, and, and affluence, you, you'll get that. Uh, and then within 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 A- Asia Pacific, when you look at sort of China and Southeast Asia and and uh, and uh, Australia, New Zealand um you know the, the that that's been a that's been a source of growth for uh for, for for some of these acquisitions as well okay uh Gino just
1: looking at the report as well it, it looks at the um, some of the inorganic international movers saw so an average of uh two point six deals over the ten year yeah. period uh with yes. an average deal size of uh two billion dollars that said there's there's quite a bit of variability here. can you expand on this and and maybe give us a couple of examples?
2: Yes, certainly. There's there's so much variability in this in this, uh, in, in this uh-huh. sort of acquisition space. Uh, we've looked at acquisitions over the last ten years with a, with a minimum size of a hundred million dollars. But right. you know, given that these are the top fifty, you know, you'd expect to see you know mega deals in in this set as well. So, a uh, couple of examples uh, higher from China. Uh, the, over the last ten years, they did three deals. Uh, and the deals are very, very different. we have We have the whole range from from a deal size of of one and a half billion dollars to a deal size of eighteen billion dollars. Wow, wow. Um, you can you, you can imagine how much revenue that sort of eighteen billion dollar deal added to their to their top line. Uh, Asahi, uh, which which we would classify as a as a serial or a very active acquirer from Japan. Uh, over this ten-year period, closed eight deals uh, across across the world, um, and a a Korean company CJ uh, again over this ten-year period uh, closed four deals, uh, and they added over you know eight billion dollars uh, in 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 revenue over this period. So, as you say, the the two point six uh, deals and the two billion deal size is is really just an average. When you open it up, you see everything from. You know, very small couple hundred million dollar deals to to mega deal. You know, close to to twenty twenty billion and above deals.
0: Wow. Now, you know, buying growth uh as we've discussed here can be a great way and a fast way to expand, but you know, it comes with its own set of issues and integration is one of those key ones. There isn't there doesn't seem to be a cookie cutter approach to integration uh, or or integrating an acquisition after you buy it. Uh based on your analysis, what can you tell us about the successful integrations studied in this report?
2: Yes, very very good question and I think very important part of this this process. The deals alone uh, and and sort of signifying and and doing deals in international markets uh, really doesn't ensure success uh, in this space. Uh, There is a significant risk uh, at stake uh, when acquiring these companies. And, and, and uh, integration plays a big part in making sure that you have sort of the, that, that, that you're able to realize sort of the deal value uh, in in this process. Um, The, what what we've seen is yes, it's very easy to add uh, top line revenue uh, and scale, and you know it's easy to build to to identify insurgent companies. But really, the integration is 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 a key part uh, to to the deal. Um, the the level of integration I think is integral to the investment thesis. Uh, you know, are you buying for scale? If you are, then you know integrating it. Uh, in a significant way to the core business is quite important if you're buying you know insurgent brands if you're buying capabilities if you're potentially expanding into the up and down the value chain or buying capabilities uh you'll need to really think hard long and hard about the level of integration mm. uh, because oftentimes you know too heavy an integration will lead to the um to the loss of the capability to the loss of talent uh to the you know to the loss of the of the secret sauce, let's say, in the insurgent brand success. Mm. Uh, and and it, it, you know, none of the acquirers want that. So mm. the level of integration is actually quite important. And it's dependent on the thesis uh, of the investment that's being made. Mm. I think one more factor is really the, the understanding and the acceptance of the cultural nuances in any of these cross-border deals. Uh, and, you know, the, the cultural integration can really make or break the uh, the success of a deal, uh, especially especially in in, in cross border and cross cultural uh, acquisitions. Now,
1: at the top of the show, when we were talking about the, the countries that were involved in this, of course, the, these top fifty, <laughs> uh, and bursting our bubble to tell us that Malaysia were not, in fact, in any of the top fifty. Malaysian companies that are wishing to to you know grow overseas, what do you think we could give them in terms of, of key takeaways to keep in mind?
2: Yes, and, and I think this is true for Malaysian companies, for other Southeast Asian companies, and and just sort of Asian companies in in general. But I think what we have found from from looking at this, uh, from doing this report and looking at the last ten years, was uh, there is a role that acquisitions. Sorry, first of all, there is a role that international business uh, ex- uh, exposure uh, can provide uh, in in a company's uh, top line growth uh, acceleration path. Um, so we've seen. Uh, three times faster growth overseas than in domestic markets mm-hmm. uh, and to and to capture that growth you know m is the quickest uh, and most scalable way to actually do that um, so we've seen you know the most active acquirers uh, grow faster in in, uh, in international in their international business uh, by pursuing uh, significant sized acquisitions. Mm. Uh, I think the the other key takeaway is you know there are different types of acquisitions depending on you know where the company's opportunities lie you know they could be traditional scale acquisitions but there could also be uh, acquisitions to 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 do um to to, to get into the insurgent uh, brand market uh to buy capabilities or to expand up and down the value chain mm. and finally I think when you when you know when companies Malaysian companies look to acquire. I think it's very important to put up front, even before the acquisition is completed, you know, the in, the integration pieces, uh, which is, you know, what do you actually want to do with this with this company with this brand uh, that you've acquired? Uh, are you going to integrate it completely and heavily into the core business, or are you going to, you know, allow them to to continue the to 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 build a secret sauce for the insurgent company growth? Uh, to continue to build their capabilities and to continue to play in in potentially different areas from the from the from the core from the acquiry business.
0: Mm. So, Gina, maybe we can wrap up on this one. I pose this question over to you: um, Is buying growth the way for Malaysian firms to grow their revenue uh, from overseas markets?
2: It certainly is one way. Uh, and again, each each company will have sort of their will chart their own growth path. But it, it certainly is one way. It's a scalable way. It's a fast way. Uh, but it doesn't come easy. Uh, and integration and cultural integration will be will be quite important. Mm.
0: Gino, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Gino.
2: Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard, for having me.
0: That was Gino Dizon, partner at Bain & Company. He's also a member of Bain's consumer products, retail, and M&A practices. Um, Richard, I, cu- I couldn't help during the conversation. Mm-hmm. Just think about the potential that Malaysia could have, right? Because, yes, largely over the last many decades, uh, <laughs> A lot of our bigger companies are more the industrial side of things, so maybe not the final product. They are often the input into that equation. But you know, to be a bigger part of that value chain, you want to be at that last mile. You want to be part of the consumer, uh, the consumer life. Uh, and I couldn't help but think about Farm Fresh, mm. right? Uh, very fast growth over the last ten years or so. Uh, challenging the the big players out there in the milk space and more, they're showing a, a some appetite for buying companies as they did with Inside Scoop, and I'm just hoping here that you know in the longer term is is buying growth overseas going to be a way for them to grow beyond Malaysia, or they want to go? Are they going to want to do it you know organically or something mm-hmm. like that?
1: I, I think buying overseas is perhaps the only way that uh, Farm Fresh could do it right now. Um, just ruminating on that, I, I reckon.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, it's not like we have any inside sources to anything <laughs> no. here. This is this is not news, guys. We're just speculating yes, in the room yes, here. Yes. Uh, but it is very interesting because we've seen like in the, in the likes of, um, take for example, Carex, right? Yep. So biggest condom maker in the world. But do you know the company's name? No, you know things like Durex. Mm. Uh, they went to Thailand and they bought a content company called One if I'm not mistaken Uh, so again trying to push for this this going to the consumer but it's not as easy to do so because you know branding is so Mm. uh, important around Mm. that um, but yeah, interesting conversation. But like he, you yeah.
1: he spoke about, you know, the, the cultural differences as well is, is mm. often the real sticking point with companies when they are trying to move overseas, you know. That misunderstanding sometimes of just a
0: slight word, a slight phrase, even when their branding, you know, is very strong in the home market. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, think of it as marriage, right? Because even if you and your, your spouse are okay, that so-called M&A activity also comes with in-laws. And, you know, having <laughs> that cultural differences, having to understand those things could be really important towards the... <laughs> Sure. Uh, let's call it successful integration of that budget <laughs> acquisition. Uh Richard, any final thoughts before no, no, we I'm move good on to go. We're good to go. All right, folks, if you missed any part of that conversation, you can catch <laughs> the full podcast on our website at bfm.my or download the BFM app, which we of course highly recommend to do. You can also find our shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the other podcast players out there. Just be sure to look up BFM Enterprise. Now, looking ahead, after the 1pm news bulletin, we've got the Breakfast Grill replay. So last year, we saw Nagara award five licences uh, for the digital banking mm-hmm. players out there. But we haven't really heard many updates since then. It's been about 15 months. And we have spoken to some of them on the grill. And today we spoke to another player, uh, Rafisa Ghazali, the CEO of CAF, Islamic Digital Bank, was on the hot seat talking about how to how they're going to be launching their bank with their consortium partners, MoneyMatch, Genexu, and and awesome. It should be noted that it's the only 100% Malaysian consortium there. Catch the conversation after the 1pm News Bulletin. I'm Rishan Karnasen with Richard Bradbury and this has been Enterprise Biz Bites taking you up to the 1pm News Bulletin. Here's Queen with Crazy Little Thing, Called Love on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.